You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. Amen. All right, that was very good, ladies. Okay, it is great to be here at Gethsemane Baptist Church. After such a long time, as he said, 2009, and I think that was about uh, November of 2009. Shall I turn this to the side? Uh, okay. And uh, it's been quite some time since we've been here, and I uh, don't think y'all have changed much at all. So uh, good to see you. Uh, it is a pleasure to be here tonight and to uh, report to you on our furlough, our uh, first kind of real long uh, furlough, and then ends up being our last, but uh, I apologize that we couldn't get out here uh, in a long time, and so we had been only a couple times before on a furlough uh, back in 2012 or 2013 and then 2016, and uh, just too far away to be able to come out here to the West Coast, so uh, we're glad to be here and uh, to uh, visit you folks out here in the lands of fruits and nuts. Uh, (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) But uh, uh, thank you for your support uh, to us through the years. Thank you for uh, your faithfulness. Thank you for standing with us and helping us to be in Serbia uh, and to represent you there, to try to reach the Serbian people with the gospel and uh, to help them to know the Lord. And so uh, to familiarize you with who we are, we are the Foss family, my wife, Rachel, uh, our kids, our five kids, uh, Caitlin, Brianna, Rebecca, David, and Elizabeth. And yes, last time I was here, I was sad, slim, and single, and uh, God provided for me uh, even before I left and uh, for the field, so that was great, uh, and I'm really thrilled for that. But uh, we are to the country of Serbia, which is the size of South Carolina. It's in southeastern uh, Central Europe, uh, population about 6.6 million, uh, formerly called Yugoslavia. And so some of you may remember uh, about it being Yugoslavia, but my burden for Serbia, uh, for those of you that are here should uh, probably recall about it, but began with the fact that my mother is Serbian. She was born and raised there. She was number nine of nine children. Uh, She left there in the 70s while it was still communist Yugoslavia, came to the United States, uh, came to Arizona, said that she wanted to be a cowgirl and I uh, can never see her ride a horse, and so uh, it's just a strange thing, but she met my father in Arizona, and he was the only one that she couldn't beat at ping pong, and so she married him, uh, but I was born uh, there in Phoenix, Arizona, actually, and then I was saved at the age of six years old, and uh, when I was a teenager, I gave my heart and life to God to do whatever he wanted to 100%, and uh, shortly after that, he called me to preach, and uh, he uh, got me going for the Lord, basically, and, and went off to Bible college. And in Bible college, here I am seeing people saved. And I got to thinking about, what about my family in Serbia? Is there anybody that's like this that, that's there that I could give uh, my family's information there uh, that they could try to see them saved? And so I started looking and looking and looking, and I couldn't find anybody, independent Baptist, much less anybody else. And so God used that to work on my heart, on my heart to say, why don't you go there? And so uh, back in 2011, March of 2011, we left for the field. And so, yes, now it's been uh, 12 years that we've been there. So uh, this is going to be a different report uh, for the rest of this than you're probably used to. Uh, But our goals have been uh, in Serbia, uh, soul winning, discipleship and church planting. Uh, The problem is that we just haven't been able to succeed in really any of them. 
And so uh, regarding soul winning, we have put out over 800,000 tracks in total in our ministry there in Serbia. And uh, we had a website with it, which uh, we're trying to have people go on for more information. Uh, try to be very discreet about uh, us personally in the first place, but uh, with the website, just a meager really amount that came on there uh, from the tracks in comparison with uh, the amount of tracks that went out, only about 18,000 views and really just a handful of contact from it, nothing positive. But I wrote a book as well to explain the gospel at length, a copy of which is on the table in the foyer, and uh, uh, was only ever able to put the text on the website, and there was just not enough interest really to publish it, because uh, I wanted to see, boy, if they're not acting, if they're not reacting to the tracks all that well, then uh, why go through all this effort to make this a really nice production for this gospel book? But uh, we have seen in our time there are only just a handful saved, and uh, but none that have been really committed to us. And so we have tried what we can there, and have tried to have people over for birthdays or special events like uh, Christmas and actually Thanksgiving, uh, and we'd give gifts to neighbors uh, and try to witness to people, uh, but no one warmed up to us, uh, not even my family, sad to say. But regarding discipleship, I wrote 13 lessons, and a copy of that can be seen on the table too. Uh, and I wasn't able to give them all, but to only about four. And uh, then I was trying to uh, disciple some uh, fellows I had hired, uh, three fellows that I had hired, but then that just went nowhere as well. But uh, our, as regarding church planting, our overall goal, uh, only one guy has stuck with us. Uh, but even then, he only comes at best every other Sunday morning and does not listen or apply things. And so in 12 years of trying to work there, that's all that we have not even a group to try and start anything. And so uh, for our goals there, we started to uh, translate the Bible into Serbian beginning in May of 2012. And in 10 years of trying to work on it, we can't even finish the New Testament. And uh, that's due to uh, them not having a burden for it. And I just think, boy, how could anybody especially... So there is saved Serbs there, but they just do not have a burden for the Word of God. And I just don't understand why they don't have a burden for the 100% pure Word of God in their own language. So what especially happened toward us was in 2019 and 2020, we had a traumatic media storm against us. And uh, I completely agree now through uh, personal experience with what President Trump said, that they are fake news and uh, they are totally that. But I don't call them mainstream media, I call them main slime media. But we had 44 articles, national news articles, and about eight TV programs against us. And yes, it was against us directly, not just about biblical Christianity overall, but they were mad, and they were mad about the gospel being put out uh, through our tracks. And so they got so mad up to the national level, which so startled me in the first place that it was even going on, and I'm thinking uh, while it started, is a news cycle this slow that they're coming after one guy? But as it just continued on, I said, well, they mean it. And so, I mean, how preposterous that is to, to think that we, just a small family, would be that much of a threat uh, to them there, 6.6 .6 million people. Uh, I mean, come on. Uh, but that's how controlling and, uh, that the devil is, uh, really. That he's going to come at us so hard more like that. But uh, really, our experience with Serbian people, uh, this is what we've come to uh, understand, is that number one, uh, they ignore us, and uh, most of our tracks have surely ended up in the trash, and I know so because I've seen many of them throw them right away, right in front of me, right away. And uh, some of them do worse. I've had uh, this one woman took it and tore it, threw it down, and she uh, did so in front of her five children. And I'm like, oh, no, you are, hard, you are uh, uh, sentencing your kids to be hardened to the gospel if they ever get another chance. 
And then uh, one kid, about eight years old, he took uh, the track, tore it up, threw it on the ground, and he said, you're a cult. And I'm like, sure, in all your long years of wisdom, you know, you just, you pipsqueak, you certainly know a cult when you see it right away. Wow. But good night. Uh, so number two, they deceive us. Uh, reporters would call who deceived me, acting like they were actual prospects, but they were trying to scoop up anything they could out of me and then go run and slander us in the media. Or some would uh, dupe us maliciously trying to get more info, and uh, through your prayers, God's protected us there. But number three, they seem to be there uh, just for money. Uh, number four, they threaten us, and we've had about every threat that you can imagine. Uh, physical harm threats, death threats, threats to uh, sue us, to put us in prison, to throw us out of the country, put us in labor mines, threats to do wicked things to my family. And uh, one guy uh, uh, called me and said that when he would come after me, that no one, not God nor man, will be able to save you. And I'm like, what's wrong with you? Don't talk like that. Uh, I mean, that's just crazy to, that people would act like that. But it seemed to be that with physical harm threats, like the going thing for a while was, like it was a fad, is that they would say they're going to come and find me and break my arms and legs. And uh, this one woman called, and she said, if I ever get this again, I'm going to come and find you and break your legs. And I told my pastor that, and he said, I don't ever want to meet any Serbian women. And, uh, I mean, can you imagine that? Just calling some guy out of the blue, you don't know how big that he is, you know? I'm like Barney from Andy Griffith, you know? My whole body's a weapon. And, uh, but, like, just so foolish, just calling a guy and threatening him like that. But, uh, number five, they don't seem to want to do anything uh, unless a foreigner does it. So... Uh, in the main, Serbs have shown that they don't want to hear what we have to say, lost or saved, and the saved don't even seem to want to help us without being paid. And so, how do you get anywhere with that? You can't. And so, the biggest problem is that been that no one stuck with us and no one helped. And so, uh, the Lord's worked on our heart. Uh, some fellow, fellow missionaries in Romania that we know said, uh, to be honest, you have given everything for Serbia. And uh, really, we have. We were going to go to the end of life. Uh, if we had to, and, uh, but we just thought some people would come along the way, and uh, really if people would stick with us, that we'd just stick it out there and just weather through whatever kind of assault that the devil would uh, throw on us. But uh, what's been working on our heart is that Matthew 10, when Jesus sent out the disciples uh, on a missions trip, he said to them that if they don't receive you and they don't hear you, you're to wipe the dust off your feet and you're to go somewhere else. And I see the wisdom in that because I know that if I was to go back and have the same uh, situation and uh, uh, coming to it, I know the result is going to be the same. I mean, we've been there for 12 years, so we know the result is going to be the same, and I know that I'm going to go crazy. And so uh, I see that that's God's wisdom in that, and so we uh, are coming off the field, and I, we announced last uh, month that we were coming off the field of Serbia. And so just understand that you have uh, been a part of something uh, historical, uh, because I think you'll agree with this, that, uh, that this is, uh, you're not wasted your investment uh, in that, because uh, in effect, when I especially tell you what uh, had happened, three of the articles that were against us put the whole tract in there. And I thought, wait a second, they just slandered us, but then they, they put the God... They did our job for us. They got the gospel to the whole country. And so somehow, through our ministry, God reached the whole country. 
And I wasn't happy, certainly, about it, but uh, you can understand then that we've done, I guess, what God would have us to do in uh, reaching the country, and so we're just looking for the next chapter, the next step uh, in our ministry, what God would have for us. And so uh, pray, uh, please pray for one, we'd sell our house, the real estate is very crazy there, uh, sell our vehicle, uh, other stuff, and be able to pack up and move back here, and then God would open up a door for us here in the United States. So uh, if you will, please uh, turn to the book of Matthew. In chapter number 9, Matthew chapter number 9, I apologize publicly for arriving late. I won't tell you I did go faster, so I apologize before the Lord and the church. Will you forgive me? I heard that uh, David Gibbs going to a meeting a couple weeks ago sped, so if he can speed, I guess I can too. But, uh, so Matthew chapter 9, let's read from verse 35 through 38. The Bible says, but, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time to be here with the great Gethsemane Baptist Church. And uh, just standing for you for a long time here uh, in this community, uh, lifting up the gospel, lifting up the Bible, and trying to point out uh, you and helping folks to come to know you. And uh, I uh, am humbled uh, for this opportunity to be here with the church. And I pray that you'll, uh, for one, give me concentration and, and help me to have the words to say. And that you, the Holy Spirit, would use uh, this to accomplish what you would have to accomplish in our hearts and lives tonight. And so please bless us with your presence. Uh, help us to... Uh, do your will, and I pray that you'll be glorified uh, through this time. In Jesus' name, we love you. Amen. Before we get to our passage here, uh, I want to ask, uh, and I think I did this uh, back in 2009, but how many of you have ever heard of a Yugo? All right, several of you. Okay, on the back of our prayer card, so when you get those, uh, on the back of our prayer card is a picture of a Yugo, and it was a compact car that was produced in Serbia, really more of a pop can, actually, but uh, it was produced in Serbia, then they ceased production in 2008, uh, and they briefly imported it into the United States in about 1987 for about six months, and they sold them for very cheap then. And people were very uh, uh, surprised, and oh, this is great, and then they realized why it was being sold so cheap. So uh, in 2010, the New York Post called it the worst car in history. So uh, we're notorious for that, apparently, but I want to tell you some things about a Yugo. What do you call a Yugo in a junkyard? A blessing. What do you call a Yugo with brakes? Customized. How do you double the value of a Yugo? You fill the tank with gas. Here in California, you probably triple it, quadruple it. Uh, what do you call a Yugo at the top of a hill? A miracle. What's found on the last two pages of every Yugo manual? A bus schedule. In the mid-90s, the Yugo company decided to diversify. They made a moped, and they called it iGo. 
They made a four-door car, called it We Go. They made a station wagon, called it Y'all Go. And they made a bus and called it All Y'all Go. Then they made a Spanish version, called it Amigo. But a Yugo can go zero to 60 in 15 seconds. You just have to push it off a cliff. But I heard that they had put in the back glass a heater, and uh, that way uh, it can warm your hands while you're pushing it. Uh, but then I also heard that there was uh, some, uh, was it mafia, no, uh, gang members in L.A. that had a Yugo, and they committed the world's first push-by shooting. So, and uh, then one of our neighbors, it was really uh, hilarious, uh, across the street from us, has an alarm, a car alarm on his Yugo, his beat-up Yugo. I don't know why. Uh, you could break into it probably with a screwdriver, and uh, you could probably buy all the parts to it and build it for like $300. And so it's like, why have, a, why have a car alarm on it? But when we're driving on the highway, it's just really surprising to see them at speed. And I'm like, oh, that's a death trap. But I'm like, how many hours did it take to get them up to speed? But uh, anyway, let's get to our, uh, our passage of Scripture here. Matthew chapter 9, uh, the Bible gives us a very important passage, and of course all of it's important, but I think when you read the Bible that some things just stick out to you uh, and stick in your mind when you're reading them, and so uh, this really sticks in my mind, this end of this chapter here, uh, where Jesus tells the disciples some important things, and so uh, really uh, what was going on in the whole chapter was a whole lot that was going on. It could be maybe encapsulated kind of a, a day in the life of Christ and his ministry, and he goes on from one thing to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next, and just keeps going and going for the Lord. And as the Bible says in Acts that he uh, went about doing good. Uh, but uh, he didn't stop at just one, like we might think, boy, one of these things would be great, healing somebody uh, or uh, seeing someone saved or something like that. Uh, he just kept on because something was pushing him, something was urging him. And I think really the last part of this is uh, a revelation then of his motive of why he was doing that and uh, why he was there in ministry in the first place. Uh, but... Uh, what I see here, of course, we can follow and uh, look at several parts of this right here. And, and really, I think we should uh, do more to this, especially with uh, verse 37 and 38, uh, about prayer. Uh, prayer for uh, laborers around the world. Prayer that God would send uh, more missionaries around the world. And we ought to do that. And I want to challenge you. I don't want to focus on this too long because we're going to go on to another aspect of this. But I want to challenge you that you ought to pray for laborers around the world. And you ought to pray very specifically. And uh, I uh, think God does like us saying God bless all missionaries or God send out missionaries. But I think that he would like us to be more specific. And uh, uh, I challenge you to have a list of the countries of the world and pray through them uh, that God would specifically send missionaries around the world. You never know, but God might use you for that or God might stir your heart through that. That's what William Carey did uh, is he made a map of the world and he prayed through the world that God would send forth missionaries and God got a hold of his heart and God sent him to India as the first uh, modern Baptist missionary from England. And so uh, God uh, wants us to do that. God here commands us to do that. But that's not our uh, focus of this uh, sermon tonight. But I want you to return back to verse 36 and see that at the first part it says there, but when he saw the multitudes, you know, how we would see the multitudes after having such a busy day. But when he saw the multitudes, he wasn't driven to go take a nap or uh, go take a break, go take a vacation uh, from all that you've been doing. 
something pricked his heart. And it says there, he was moved with compassion on them. And so I want to focus on that right now about the compassion of Christ uh, that we see here uh, that comes from this story. Uh, why would I want to focus on that? Is because if you're a saved, uh, if you're a born-again believer uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, you ought to be growing in your relationship with God. And uh, Christian, first of all, means that a person is born again, that they are saved, uh, that they believe only in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Uh, that's the first thing to become a Christian. But afterwards, there's more to it. Uh, a Christian also means a Christ follower or Christ-like. And so we are to go on, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're to become like him, be followers of God as dear children. So we are to be like him. And then what we ought to do then is to study what he was like and then try to see that. And really, as you grow in the Lord, he can then live through you and become and bring those characteristics through your life. And I don't know about you, but I'm failing at that uh, in many ways. Uh, but we need to walk close to the Lord and be close, draw nigh to him, and he'll draw nigh to us. And when we do that, then he'll bring those characteristics out in our life. Well, compassion, the compassion of Christ is one of those great characteristics that should come through us and uh, that should be in our hearts and lives. And so if we'll be faithful Christians, then we ought to have compassion for others, just like Christ. But... What is compassion? Uh, a Bible college teacher at my wife's Bible college had a great way of explaining what compassion is. He said, compassion is filling your heart with someone else's pain. And that's a really good way to look at it. And uh, compassion uh, is a sympathetic sorrow for the suffering, the distress, or misfortune of others, and a desire then on your part to do something about it in order to relieve it or take it away. Uh, compassion is saying that you're not going to focus only on yourself, but you're going to focus on others too. Uh, and so uh, that you'll have a care and a compassion, a concern uh, for others. Now, many times compassion is excited or brought out, drawn out by what we see and perceive is a problem or a need in someone else's life. Uh, many times Jesus was moved to compassion uh, because of somebody's physical need, as a need for healing or a need for food or uh, for those that were grieving over a, of a loved one that had died. And so, but in our passage, we see a little bit different than that. Those all were kind of uh, compassion for a physical situation, uh, which is good. It's good in its own self. But this goes beyond that, obviously, because uh, we see here in the passage, verse 37, 38, that it was a spiritual uh, kind of a concern that he had, uh, had expressed here. And so this compassion was a compassion over their spiritual needs that he saw. And we don't know specifically here, uh, but it says there, but when he saw the multitudes, what did he see? It doesn't say. It just says he saw the multitudes, and uh, maybe he just uh, was confronted with the fact, of course, that they are never-dying souls going somewhere. Or maybe he could even see beyond just the physical on the outside and actually see their souls and then remind himself of where their destiny is unless something came in to change that, that they'd turn to him. And that just moved him to compassion over them. And so uh, that's what I want to tell you is that uh, we ought to be like that. It just moved him to plead for more laborers to get out there and do something about it to get to the harvest so that souls could be rescued. Uh, so he had a compassion for the salvation of souls. He was pleading for people to go to them to win them to salvation. But do we, like him, have a compassion for souls? We are not Christ-like unless we care. 
So I want to talk about that tonight and focus on several things uh, that will help, I think, build this and drill this deep into your heart, uh, that you'll uh, cry out to the Lord that you'll want this for yourself. Let's focus, first of all, on a low value of life. Uh, there is such a low value of life today. Uh, it is unbelievable. Uh, it is appalling to live in such a day where people don't value human life highly, if much at all, unless it's their own life. And so it is just crazy. And some of the things it seems today, especially in California, I have to say, I know we uh, in the East talk about California. I don't know. Do you know we talk about California outside of California? And uh, the, the people here, and so uh, uh, sorry that you all are the butt of many jokes. And so, uh, <laughs> uh, but it seems like there are better protections on the lives and well-being of animals than there are with people. Uh, hey, you know, we're different than animals, better than animals. I know that's heresy and blasphemy in many parts of probably California here, but that's the truth. It's the truth, okay? The Bible says that we're created in God's image. Animals aren't. Uh, we're created with a living soul. Animals aren't. Uh, we're created to have an eternal existence. Animals aren't. When they die, that's the end of them. And so uh, there is much, much more to us, and we are of way greater value uh, than an animal. And so, but why is it then that so many of the animals are getting better treatment? Uh, and I know your governor uh, probably has something to do with that. Man, he loves his hair. He loves his hair like more than the, country, than the, than the state, it seems. Uh, but they're getting more, uh, they're getting better treatment. And it seems like some people just will treat their pets better than they will a person. Uh, and you probably know uh, some of those type. And uh, we know some of those ourselves. But They'll take better care of their pets, and they'll pamper them, and they'll give them treats, and then they'll dress them in little clown costumes and whatever, and it's like, this is why dogs bite people, okay? And uh, uh, if you do that, please stop. Uh, but goodness, uh, they'll do that, but then their neighbor, though, is starving, and they don't care about that. Uh, but I would say that uh, I would be really concerned if such kind of people were asked this question, uh, if there was a fire and your dog was in there and your neighbor, but you could save only one, which would you save? I'd be very concerned because I think I know some people that would say they'd save their dog uh, more than they would save me or, or somebody else. But how, that's just a, a plain uh, illustration about the low value of life. Now, we could go on to talk about many ways to illustrate how that uh, life is so uh, uh, despicably valued. Uh, but I would say the, the greatest and the worst uh, uh, illustration of that is abortion. And uh, abortion uh, shows that there's such a low value on life. Uh, that's one of the worst things that a person can do uh, to kill a baby. And that's what it is. It is murder. Uh, a baby is... Uh, receives life at conception. There's no debate about it. Uh, that's when the Bible clearly shows uh, that God intended uh, that a person would become a person at conception. And uh, uh, when God then marries the soul to the, uh, to the physical existence, and that's when we start out on life. It doesn't say, oh, somewhere on uh, do we become a person, much less that a mother and a doctor could decide when uh, a baby is a person. How, how despicable 
uh, is that, and uh, that they act like that. And how despicable uh, that they would take the life of a baby. Uh, the womb of the mother should be the, most, the safest place uh, for a baby, but yet it's the most dangerous place. Uh, I don't know if you know some of these facts and figures. Some uh, do know them, but uh, the total abortions, reported abortions, in the United States since 1973 until now has been 64.6 million plus. Remember, reported. So there could be even more than that. Now, that's like the whole state of California, gone, uh, aborted. Uh, that's despicable. That's horrible. Uh, that, is, that is worse. That's all the, all the wars of America combined. Uh, that have died in them, more, much more than that. Uh, but I want to tell you, we focus on that, but we forget worldwide. Uh, worldwide, since 1980, there has been 1.687 billion that have been aborted. That is horrifying, people. That is more than all of the wars in all of time combined, and more than that, I'm sure. Uh, that's like all of India, gone. That's like all of China, gone. All the Catholics, gone. All the Muslims, gone. That's terrifying. But that just shows you the low value of life that there is today. Uh, that's despicable. That's horrible. And praise God that uh, last year that they threw out the Roe versus Wade. Uh, that was one of the greatest moments in my life. I hope that you would think that yourself as well. And uh, we could talk about abortion uh, more, but it's just it's sad Terrible illustration about the low value of life today. Uh, but I want to tell you about the seriousness of the situation. Uh, the seriousness of the situation beyond just a physical uh, value of life. We need to have a value of life per person's soul. Uh, and so we need to see the seriousness of the situation about it. Uh, what's it going to take uh, for you and I to be burdened for someone's soul? Uh, most burdens that people have for others uh, are just kind of a bodily, a physical compassion, like we talked about earlier, as a burden for their physical needs. And I'm not decrying that. And, uh, but, like, you could really pull on a woman's heartstrings if you uh, said that your child had to go to school hungry because there was nothing to eat in your home. And, like, the next day, you're probably going to have, like, the whole grocery store at your step. And good for that woman that has compassion for that need right there, and we ought to have that. So... But what about the spiritual needs of people? Uh, do those move us? Uh, every person, as I said before, every person that we come across in life is going on somewhere into eternity, either heaven or hell. There's no other place but those two. Uh, and so uh, they are an eternal, never-dying soul headed somewhere. Do we care where they go? We should. We need to care. If you have no compassion for where they're headed. Do you even really believe that hell exists? Uh, and so if you would believe it exists, it would do something in your life because you'd realize that people are going there. People that you know. Uh, people that live around you. Uh, maybe even in your home. People that you work with, buy from, or associate with. Christians just fail to somehow realize that lost sinners will go to hell when they die. And we need to do something about it. Compassion is just a natural reaction to that realization that they're headed to hell. And we've got the desperate solution that they need. And so compassion says, I care for them. I don't want them to go to hell. And therefore, I've got to do something about it. So if you don't even try to do something about it, please, you, you don't have compassion. Uh, and so 
uh, I want to to make some study about that and help us to really realize maybe some things about it. But uh, maybe you do care for people, but does that care extend into eternity? I want to give you a little test. There was a woman that was sitting at a table, and she was trying, she was trying to teach her little son the alphabet. She tried, but he was four years old, and he failed to do it right. She tried again, but he failed again. Uh, the father comes in, and he sees what she's doing and or trying to do and says to her, let me show him how. He sits down, takes a pencil, begins to show him how to make the letters. The boy tries and fails. The father keeps showing him, but the boy keeps failing. And then, in a fit of anger, the father jumps out of his chair, grabs the boy in his hands, lifts him up, crushes his arms, picks him up in the air, and throws him on the floor, and comes and tramples on his body. How despicable. How horrifying. Of course, this man's arrested and thrown in jail. That should happen. I think he should be buried under the jail. Uh, but the boy was in the hospital with two broken arms, a broken shoulder, and a fractured skull, all made by his very own father. Uh, how terrible. How disturbing is that? Now, I love children, and I couldn't imagine anybody doing that. Uh, but, you know, probably like I did when I first heard this story, you might, got, you might have gotten upset about that illustration. And you should. Uh, but I have to tell you, that illustration is at least 45 years old. And I happened somewhere in America. I don't remember where. Uh, I don't recall the, name, uh, the names of the man or the name of the uh, boy. And so, but here you are, upset. Upset about something that happened long ago that you can't do anything about. That you don't even know where it happened. You don't even know who it is. But your compassion went out to the situation. Your compassion went out because it was a dramatic tragedy, a terrible thing that happened. But you can't do anything about it. But what about the people that you can do something about around you that are having a worse tragedy than you can ever, ever imagine? I remember when the World Trade Towers fell in New York City. And that, how that many people uh, were falling from them from numerous stories up, like from the 90th floor. And they were just trying to escape the flames. The flames were so hot. And so they were jumping out and jumping from the building from that. And so, so many of us that have seen that uh, were just breaking into tears uh, as we watched these people fall to their deaths. It's a terrible, awful of a situation. And uh, like you, I was shocked at someone falling to their death in such a terrible way. Though, I didn't know them. I mean, did you? Did anybody here know them? Uh, but I probably never met them. And probably never have met their family since then, either. Uh, but the dramatic and terrible events of what was going on excited and drew out our compassion and sorrow over this tragic death of somebody we never met. Uh, and so if those people were not saved, truly, if, if they were not saved, their bodies hit the ground and their soul immediately went on down all the way to hell. That's awful. Awful, certainly. Uh, but uh, Christians saw those people fall and were burdened but were we burdened for our neighbors around us as equally lost as those people that died then? Were we? And so just the fact of hell should move us to urgent compassion. Uh, Billy Sunday said, uh, we need a panic in religion. Uh, he didn't mean this wild, frantic panic of people in mass hysteria going and trampling over others. Uh, but he meant a panic and a desperation about the fact that people die lost and go to hell. 
So we need to be bothered, troubled, panicked that people are going there. And so it ought to just tear our hearts up that people we know are going there. If you have any heart for God, that's how you should feel about lost people going to hell. It should just generate this compassion for them. There's a man that's well-known in Serbia. Uh, that uh, ha- He's a fisherman on the Danube River just below this uh, big bridge that crosses over uh, the Danube River right there in Belgrade, where we live. Uh, and this man, his name is Renato Grbic, uh, and he is well-known for his heroism as he goes and he rescues people from the Danube. And uh, by the way, they, though you may hear that the Danube is blue, where it's at, it is not. It is brown, and there's a reason why. But uh, since the 1990s, this guy has rescued many people that have fallen from the bridge into the river. And uh, uh, most of those, uh, some of them are accidental, but sadly most of them are, they're trying to commit suicide. And so since this guy fishes nearby, he's got a restaurant uh, nearby on the bank of the river, he keeps watch for if someone will uh, uh, fall from the bridge. And so maybe he'll only hear just a splash of someone falling into the water, and he'll race over to his boat, he'll jump in and get over to them as quick as he can, and he'll pull them out of the water. And he has rescued, since uh, the 90s, over 30 people like that till now. And he's just in the news, and the Serbs just love him, they consider him a hero. Uh, He rescues people, he's got a great compassion on their physical life uh, to keep them from dying. And uh, we tried to use that when all the media uh, was against us and saying, listen, we're like him. He, though, is for physical, we're for spiritual. Uh, They didn't respect that much. But uh, I just want to tell you that uh, we need to have that. We're we're desperate about that. We want to do something about that. And so uh, let me tell you about this story, and then we'll go on to the next point. But on October the 14th of 1987, in a city called Midland, Texas, an 18-month-old toddler girl named Jessica McClure, baby Jessica, how many remember about baby Jessica uh, back then? Uh, fell down a well in her aunt's backyard, and she was stuck down there for about 60 hours. And so it got out quick. This little girl's in trouble, and she could die down there unless people come to help. And so she had accidentally stepped into a 7.87-inch diameter uh, pipe and uh, that's tiny, and she slid with her left leg down and her right leg coming up behind her, doing the splits all the way down the pipe, and she ends up 22 feet below the ground. And so they uh, had tried to pull her up, but they didn't want to injure her, uh, oh, so people were alerted, and the rescuers came the right way to, uh, to try to get her, and, but nobody could fit down the well, of course, uh, but they tried to pull her up, but they didn't want to injure her, and so they couldn't do much that way. And so what they did was they consulted with gas and oil experts, and the uh, best idea they had was to drill a separate, uh, larger hole parallel to that shaft uh, that she was in and try to get as close to where she was and try to break through, her, uh, break through the wall to her the, without harming her. And so it was tense, if you remember that, and uh, they had some setbacks. And like the, nearly the whole thing was televised. Uh, and so people from across the nation and probably around the world were just intent on finding out, uh, is this girl going to get rescued? Is she going to survive? And so for two days, they watched uh, live news coverage about it, deeply concerned. And so when she was pulled out, it was like this collective sigh of relief around the world. <sighs> like, she's safe. She's fine. And... Uh, uh, Really, she only had a cut on her head and had to have a toe amputated later because of an infection from it, but she survived just fine. 
And she's now in her 30s, she's married and has children of her own. Uh, people's heart went out for her situation out of a compassion, uh, and out of compassion they rushed in to help or they waited intently praying uh, about any coverage about her. Uh, and it was incredible how many people were concerned about her. Were they concerned about her before then? Have they been concerned about her since then? No, you probably wouldn't recognize her today. And so that's what I'm trying to tell you folks. Let's go back to this passage here in Matthew chapter 9. And it says there in verse 36, But when he saw the multitudes, comma, it doesn't say anything else there. It doesn't say, uh, when he saw the multitudes crying and weeping and gnashing their teeth uh, in great pain and all this, he didn't see anything dramatic. I would say, it doesn't really explain whatsoever there. And like I said earlier, in my opinion, because of what he goes on to say, it had to be that he saw their destiny. He saw the condition of their souls, and it moved into compassion about it. But he didn't see anything physically tragic and dramatic going on. Why do we have to see dramatic and tragic things to get compassionate about somebody else? Somebody else that we don't even know many times. Why can't we see what's going to happen, the great tragedy that's lying ahead for most people, and keep that in the forefront of our minds, and be excited to compassion because of that. That's the point here. Don't miss that point. We should always keep in the forefront of our minds that people are going to hell, and we've got to do something about it. The next thing I want to tell you is that who is the right candidate for this? Of all people, the born-again Christian is the one who ought to have compassion for souls. Of all people, he's the kind of person uh, to truly see the situation as it is, and he's the one that can best do something about it because in his situation, he's already received the answer necessary. And he should, therefore, be able to give it to other people, too. We should be concerned for people where they go when they die, and we should have a great burden for them that they would be saved. Paul had that great burden for people. Uh, Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 3, and then Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he talked about having a great burden for Israelites to be saved. And he said, oh, that uh, my, great, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is that Israel might be saved. He even uh, said if it was possible that God would take away his salvation from him just so that they could be saved. Now, it's not possible that God can take away our salvation. He said it's eternal. It's an everlasting life, eternal life. Once you got it, it's yours from then on. Uh, but he, wow, had such a compassion for his own people that he was willing even for that. Wow. Uh, I, that's shocking uh, to me. He was that burden for them. But I want to tell you, you know, this kind of sounds too simple to say this. Like, everybody should know this already. But it's nevertheless an important principle that you need to understand and listen to. We do the things that we think and feel are important. You can speak well about all the things that you believe, but if you don't act in accordance with them, are they really that important to you? You may say that winning souls is important, but if you don't invest any effort into it to go out and try to see people saved, then by your actions you're saying it's not important. People's actions show if they truly think that something is important. You don't see me going to the store and taking advantage on the sales on cigarettes and alcohol. And neither should you, by the way. Uh, and uh, at the very best, they're just poisons. Uh, but you also won't see me standing in line to go and watch the latest popular movie. I don't even know what's going on. 
I don't care. And you shouldn't either. It's because it's not important. It shouldn't be important to us. But uh, I am sending a message by what I do or don't do, what I think about the importance of that thing. You may say now that you, like Jesus, see the value of a soul and you have a compassion on them about where they're going. But it's got to motivate you to action or really, frankly, your words are worthless. So there was a pastor in Canada named Oswald J. Smith and he had said, oh, to realize that souls, precious, never dying souls are perishing all around us, going out into the blackness of darkness and despair, eternally lost. And yet to feel no anguish, shed no tears, no, no travail? How little we know of the compassion of Jesus. Ugh, ugh, oh, but that, oh, that, hit, that hits me, strikes me, and it should strike us and trouble us, that kind of statement. Uh, every moment, someone goes into eternity without the Lord. And we're the ones that ought to be doing something about it before then. We're the only ones that really can. Uh, uh, and so the point is, though, if you have no burden for others to be saved, something's wrong. Uh, uh, Charles Spurgeon had said, don't amen this, uh, but if you have no desire to reach others with the gospel, then you are not saved yourself. Now, I didn't say that. Uh, and it's a little overboard, in my opinion, to say that. Uh, because people can drift in their heart and their relationship with God and be backslidden. And so maybe they are saved, they're just away from God. Uh, but I would say at least that it's a sign there's big trouble uh, in a person's heart, and the person in question, who doesn't have a desire for people to be saved. Uh, Spurgeon also said, and this one I hardly agree with, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. If they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled with the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. That's the kind of person who's truly burdened and bothered by that people aren't saved. That's the person that has a compassion for souls. We who have the desperately needed message of the gospel must get it to the world. And... We have to do everything we can for that. So if you'll be uh, patient with me, I want to cover another couple points, uh, a few points, and then we'll be done uh, for the evening. And uh, you all start early, so I guess you can go all the way into the late evening, right? Uh, so, <laughs> But I want to talk to you about the reaction uh, to compassion. And so uh, if you'll turn to uh, the book of Jude, you should look next to your neighbor and say, what chapter? Book of Jude. I need to get there myself. The book of Jude in verse number 22. The Bible says, And of some have compassion, making a difference. Now, we get this statement wrong sometimes, and some people just put this as like, have compassion, because that will make a difference in people's life. Uh, I think that they are misunderstanding this verse here. Uh, because it doesn't end with a period. Uh, it ends with this uh, colon. And so it means the next thing ought to be uh, associated with it. And it does. Uh, and of some have compassion, making a difference, verse number 23, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment slaughtered by the flesh. So it's saying there's two groups of people, and the, the phrase there, making a difference, says 
make a distinction, as in see which group that a person is, which they would belong to, and make a distinction, what tactic are you, do you need to use? And so some people, you need to have compassion on them. Show them that you care. We'll talk about that in just a moment, but uh, express this compassion on them and make it evident to them that you care for them. Some people, though, and you have to evaluate the situation, will that even get across? Because some people, like Serbs, do not uh, react to that. Uh, but some people, maybe you need to do the other thing, and that is be hard on them. Not blast them, but be hard on them and, and with great fear, with great trepidation, uh, uh, with great uh, uh, concern over their soul. And you express that, you don't need to get saved, oh no, and pulling them out of the fire, as it says there, showing you're desperate about their situation. Some people just won't react to the first, but maybe they'll react to the second. And so that's the point there is to say that. But uh, it is the compassion for people that we witness to uh, that we ought to at least have that. Obviously, that's the underlying thing that drives us anyway to try and go and see them saved. Uh, but we need to have compassion for people. Uh, people aren't going to get concerned about their souls. Uh, if they'll get concerned about their souls, they're going to need to see that you are concerned about their soul. And so they've not, they're not going to be moved about their situation if you're not moved about it. Uh, if we want the gospel of the love of God, the incredible sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ in our place to melt their hearts, our hearts ought to be first melted with compassion over their destiny. You know, we're emotional creatures, and we can therefore be easily influenced with others when they express uh, emotion in front of us. And so that's why on TV shows that they put laugh tracks in there to try to get you to laugh at something and to join in on that because they want to excite your emotion about that. But uh, so we will respond many times when somebody else is emotional uh, in front of us. Now, there's a story about, told about a Christian woman in London. She had a ministry many years ago trying to reach prostitutes with the gospel. She came across a young woman who was terribly sick, undoubtedly from VD, and lying in a cold and bare room. Uh, she took care of her by changing her bed sheets as well as giving her food and medicine while trying to make sure that the room was warm for her, even cheerful. Uh, she'd done this without any request from the woman, but after a while of taking care of her, she felt that she might have gained her confidence, and so she asked her if she could pray for her there. The prostitute coldly refused, saying, No, you don't care for me. You're just doing this to go to heaven, to get to heaven. Obviously, the prostitute misunderstood, uh, not realizing we don't work to get to heaven. Uh, but this Christian woman truly did care for her and had a compassion for her. Weeks passed, and still this Christian woman served her tirelessly, trying to help her fully recover her health. Eventually, the Christian saw that she was recovering, and she told her, my dear, you're, not, you're nearly well now, and I must leave you to tend to the needs of others. But before I go, I want to kiss you goodbye. Now this so shocked the prostitute, uh, for one, that the lady would be that kind to actually truly take care of her all that time, thinking she didn't act, actually care for her, but then go even to show with this physical sign to even kiss her, uh, that she truly did uh, uh, take care of her. She, she truly, truly did care for her, and it finally hit her all of a sudden. And so it, her heart broke over it, and she wanted to know the lady's Savior for herself. And so it was a matter of moments later, and the lady led her to salvation. The unconditional love and compassion of this Christian lady 
was what won that poor, sinful prostitute to the Lord. Now, I want to tell you there's something that you ought to try. So if you want to uh, be compassionate, there's something you ought to try to really express it. In England, there was two women in a city that were working for the Salvation Army. A ministry at that time that tried to see people saved started by a man named General William Booth. Uh, this was back when they actually tried to do that, but they're still around today, but they don't focus on that anymore. Instead, they try to feed people, feed the homeless, and give shelter to them. They need to stop calling themselves Salvation Army. Uh, but these women were working among people in a city, uh, which was a poor city, and uh, the main job there was spinning and weaving cotton into cloth, uh, nothing any more lucrative than that. And so the whole town was at poverty level. Uh, these women worked for a couple of years and nothing was happening. Uh, no one was responding. And they were working hard, trying to get the, trying to get the people interested in that they could be saved. And uh, these women would go to bed at night exhausted each night from their work. And so they eventually wrote to General Booth saying, would you kindly move us to another station? We're so tired and disheartened. We've tried everything we've been taught to. People move us, uh, please move us to another location. So they got a telegram back with him with only two words on it. Try tears. And so they did. They started praying fervently with real burden and brokenness and crying for the people there, being anguished for them. And then they went to the people. And they saw a great revival happen there. And a Salvation Army post was established there. So tears and compassion worked where no amount of hard work had. So ready proof to most people of the compassion is that you would shed tears. They're liquid compassion. It's strange, but we're the only biological creatures on earth that shed tears when you have emotional stress. And animals may shed tears for different reasons, many reasons like to remove salt from the body or to clear the eye of some irritant in it, but never out of compassion for another creature or from emotional stress or distress. The Bible talks over and over about tears, and we have tears of grief when people pass away. Uh, we have tears of joy or tears of gratitude, tears of parting, of contrition, or even of punishment. But some of the most powerful tears that we could have are tears of compassion. And they ought to be used to try to win souls. God commands for them. Psalm 126, verse 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Tears, do that. Tears, God wants that to happen. Because what it is is that tears show that you truly care. They show that you're brokenhearted for people. People can't see your heart, but when you shed tears for them, they will have a pretty, <coughs> pretty good idea that you genuinely do care for them. And so, uh, are you moved to tears for people? Uh, tears might just help to break their hard hearts and warm them up to the gospel of God's love and desire for them to be saved. Tears on our faces are reflections of the tears on God's face for the anguish he's feeling for their lost souls and their continued rejection of him. So you shedding a tear for their soul is you allowing God to express his heart and compassion for them through you. The last thing I have to tell you is that the decision is theirs. Though we just said that people respond to compassion, I have to say compassion may not always work like we just talked about. The decision is still theirs. 
As we saw the, uh, lady, the uh, lady trying to reach the prostitute express compassion, genuine care for her, and it still took quite some time to break through her hard heart. Some may never respond positively to that. Uh, there was an independent Baptist preacher named Mays Jackson uh, that uh, preached as an evangelist many years in America. He had a meeting one time in Chattanooga, Tennessee, at Independent Baptist Church there. And so there was an old, little old lady that came to him after the service and asked him, would he go and visit her daughter in jail for her? And so she was crying, and she was saying that she had a daughter that no one loved, but she said, but I love her, and Jesus loves her. She said that she was full of tattoos, and she was very hard-hearted, and she said that she wanted him to go there because her daughter was having a birthday, and she was turning either 39 or 40. He didn't remember exactly. Uh, and she wanted to get her a present. She couldn't think of anything to give her except one thing, and, he, and she asked him to take a tour. It was a little bottle that she'd emptied out, and she filled it with her own tears for her daughter. He said he'd go, and he had another man come with him, an officer. Uh, he said that he came on her birthday, and she was the roughest, meanest, and most arrogant woman that he'd ever met. He said that though she was supposed to be about 40, she looked like she was 75. That's what sin will do to you, the wages of sin. Uh, he told her that he had a birthday present for her, and she said that if it was from her mother, that she did not want it. And she also said that she didn't want him preaching to her either. She figured out he was a, a preacher. He took the bottle of tears out of his pocket and said, this is your present. He said, it's not cologne, not perfume, it's a bottle. She replied back, I don't need that bottle. And you can tell mother, I don't want to have a happy birthday either. Ugh. He urged her to take it, but asked her not to throw it on the concrete floor. He said, it came from a brokenhearted mother. She shed this bottle of tears for you. She was still rejecting of it. And so... They left. The officer turns to him and says, I sure wish I had a mother that would have shed that many tears for me. But some people just may not respond to compassion and care for them. And they just might uh, not react positively, even if you'd shed a bucket of tears for them. And so they just might be too hard-hearted to respond. And, but it doesn't mean that we should give up on them. We should still try to reach them. And they may still die lost, but God will honor those tears. So, in conclusion, are you moved for their situation? It'd be a terrible thing if you're unmoved by it. Uh, it is awful. Uh, we should have compassion. We should have compassion for lost souls. Have be fervent uh, and desperate that people would be saved. Uh, God wants us to be like that. God wants us to have uh, that. God wants us to get our eyes off of others, uh, get our eyes on others, and see them what they, for what they are, eternal souls in need of the Savior. You should give yourself and your life to this great work of winning souls to Christ. Uh, we desperately need more and more people out winning souls to salvation. You guys have got a big city here, and you need to reach them. Will you win souls? Get a compassion for souls. Beg God to give you a broken heart for souls, to weep for them. Are you hungry to see people saved? Uh, uh, how much do you care if lost souls go to hell? Billy Sunday said, let us not betray Jesus Christ with a guilty silence. We need to speak up with the gospel. 
We need to try to get it to lost souls. We need to try to do our part. If you were the one that was lost, and you understood the kind of condition that you were in, you'd want someone to come and tell you the gospel before it's too late. Just because you were reached in time and you've got the truth now, that doesn't mean that you should just relax and take it easy the rest of your life. You need to get out there and try to see people saved. Their eternity depends on you. Let's have every head bowed and every eye closed. Thank you for your patience tonight. Thank you for listening with intent to the sermon. What is it the Lord is dealing with your heart about? We don't come to church just to take up time. Uh, we don't come to church just to say, oh, we did our part, we had our religious service. It's not a ritual, it's a life. It's a life of, of experience with the Lord, to know Him, fellowship with Him, glorify Him, worship Him, and then go out and do something for Him. That's what the Christian life is about. God didn't save you just to kick back, relax, and do whatever you want in your life. He left us here for one main reason. Before we were saved, the whole purpose of our life was to get saved. Maybe God held out on us long enough so we get saved, but then after we got saved,